grab a Bible, turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Author Jesse Rice has written a breakup letter with his fear of what others think. Listen to what he writes. He says, dear fear of what others think. I am sick of you and it's time we break up. I know we've broken up and gotten together, gotten back together many times, but seriously fear of what others think. This is it. We're breaking up. I'm tired of overthinking my status on Facebook, trying to sound more clever, more funny, and more important. I'm sick of feeling anxious about what I say or do in public, especially around people that I don't even know that well, all in the hope that they'll like me, accept me, and praise me. I run around all day long feeling like a golden retriever with a full bladder. Like me, like me, like me. Because of you, I go through my day with a cloud of shame hanging over my head. And I never stop acting. The spotlight's always on. And I'm center stage. And I'd better keep dancing and posturing and posing or else the spotlight will move and I'll dissolve into a a little meaningless puddle on the ground just like the witch in The Wizard of Oz. I can never live up to the expectations of my imaginary audience, the one that lives in my head, not the one that lives only in my head, but whose collective voice is louder than any other voice in the universe. And all of this, especially evil, because if I stop and really think about it and let things go quiet and listen patiently for the voice of God who made me and the Savior who died for me, in his eyes, it turns out that I'm actually profoundly precious, lovable, and valuable. When I find my true identity in Christ, then you turn back into the tiny, yapping little dog that you are. So eat it, fear of what others think. You and I are done. And no, I'm not interested in talking it through. I'm running, jumping, and laughing you out of my life once and for all. Or at least that's what I really, really want. God help me. So... All right, now raise your hand if you need to write a similar letter to your fear of what others think. Absolutely. Uh, That's where probably all of us are uh, today. We need to end that relationship. And what's interesting about that is we've been trained since we were young to be concerned about what other people uh, think of us. I remember when I was a kid growing up and if I was going on a trip with a friend, going overnight somewhere, my mom would always say, now Scott, don't wear socks with holes in them and don't wear dirty underwear. And I'm thinking to myself, well, what difference does that make? And, uh, you know, she would say, well, you know, you might end up in the hospital and, uh, you know, something might, you know, they might see something or something. And so uh, apparently unholy socks and clean underwear help you in the hospital. So, um, now, certainly, I think, I think there's a part of that fear of what others think that is healthy, right? I mean, I think there's a certain level of it that, we, that is healthy and good. But I think the problem arises when we start to value the opinions of others more than we value God's opinion. Does that make sense? In other words, we, we have this fear of people that's greater than our fear and reverence of God. And so then what happens is it puts us in a position to compromise our convictions and, uh, and then we chase after the acceptance and the approval of other people. And it's just this endless, uh, deadly cycle in our lives. Now, we're in this series that we launched last week called Endgame. And uh, we're talking about facing the future without fear. 
And we're in this First Thessalonians letter. And, and I shared with you all last Sunday that this letter really has this dual focus going on to it. So, so what Paul is really wanting us to do is he wants us to focus like a laser right on the future that God has for us. And he answers some questions about the second coming, about the coming of Christ. But not only does he do that, but he puts a laser focus on living in the here and now. And he really wants us to be fully engaged and uh, fully focused uh, with our feet on the ground in the here and now. But he wants our eyes on eternity. And what he's going to say basically is this, that, that Jesus' coming gives us assurance and confidence uh, for the future. And I think a big part of our fear of the future is related to our fear of other people and what they might think of us. And so I think the question becomes, how do we break it off with our fear of what other people think? Uh, how do we get to that place of really loving God and treasuring his opinion and pursuing his approval more than anyone else's. That's what I want us to look at today. I think what Paul is going to say in this letter is it really just boils down to just making a commitment in our hearts to live for an audience of one, to just simply please the one, the only one whose opinion really matters because that's the only opinion that's going to last. Now, I want to give you a little bit of context for what we're going to read today. So oftentimes we read through Paul's letters. We're not really sure kind of what's, what's happening behind the scenes. So I'm going to set it up for you a little bit today. If you want to understand 1 Thessalonians, you've got to go back to Acts chapter 17. And in Acts 17, what Luke tells us is that Paul and Silas they landed in the city of Thessalonica and they were on a mission. They wanted to plant a church there. And so what they normally did, their standard operating procedure was to go into a city and go to the nearest Jewish synagogue. And what they would do is Paul would begin preaching and teaching using the Old Testament and pointing those Jews to Christ. And, how, and he would proclaim how Jesus is the fulfillment and the end game of the Old Testament. And that's exactly what he was doing as we, it's recorded in Acts 17, three consecutive Sabbath days, Paul is preaching in the city of Thessalonica. He gives an invitation and there's a tremendous response. There are a lot of people coming to Christ because of his bold proclamation of the gospel. But with that great response, there also arises great opposition to Paul's message. And his mission trip to Thessalonica begins to go south from a certain point of view. So what happens is we know from, from Acts 17, there were Jews in that city who saw the response to his preaching and to his message, and they immediately begin to be jealous. And so they go down to the marketplace. They find some rabble rousers down there, some guys that are looking for trouble. You guys know what I mean. And, and so they're able to kind of secure these folks and ban them into a group, and they are able to start a riot and a demonstration against the message of the Apostle Paul. And so things get hot and heavy, and so what you have is the birth of a church in the city of Thessalonica as a result of God's preaching, but also as a result of opposition, uh, you know, in a public, public riot. So the city is boiling over with tension, I think we can relate to this. The city is boiling over with tension and Paul and Silas are in danger. 
And so the early Christians in Thessalonica make the decision, we need to smuggle these guys out of here under the cover of darkness, get them, get them moving on to their next de- destination so that no one will harm them. And that's exactly what happens. So Luke tells us the brothers immediately, this is verse 10, sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. So they get under the cloak of darkness. They get out of there in a hurry and uh, things seemingly are going well. Well, word spreads of this throughout the city and uh, people are really ticked off. And apparently, and so this is, some of this is just kind of conjecture from about what we're going to read here in in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, but it really seems to make sense that the opponents and the enemies of the apostle Paul started using his late night escape against him. And they started, they, they basically started questioning his motives and his ministry and started spreading false accusations against the Apostle Paul. And so as they're calling into question his, his motives and his commitment, uh, you know, to, to, to Christ and to truth, the Thessalonian Christians are hearing all of this. And so it begins to be a problem. And so Bible commentator John Stott gives us some insight into kind of the flavor of these accusations that were being leveled against the Apostle Paul. These accusations kind of help us understand uh, chapter 2, which we're going to read here in just a moment. But he basically would basically say this. He said uh, some of the accusations would have this kind of flavor. Paul's nothing but a fraud. He's nothing but a phony, and I can prove it to you. When he knew that his goose was cooked... He slipped out under the cover of darkness to save his own skin, and he really doesn't care. He's really in it for the money. He's really in it for the prestige. He's really in it for the popularity. That's the only reason why he's doing what he's doing. So much for the man, so much for his ministry, so much for his message. And this kind of stuff was circulating all around the city of Thessalonica, and it landed on the ears of the early Christians that were there. And so... And so as they're buying into this, neg- this narrative, the Apostle Paul is going to respond to these accusations. And he's not really so much interested in defending his own self-image as much as he's just interested in the health of the church that they've started there. He's more interested really in spreading the gospel. That's his motive for really defending himself. And so that's what we're going to see. So hopefully that, that will help you understand uh, what we're about to read. We're going to read uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 16. So I'm going to invite you, if you're willing and able, would you please stand as we read the Word of God today. So Paul writes this, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, As you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error, impurity, or any attempt to deceive, but just as we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves 
because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor, our labor and toil. We work night and day that, that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And we also thank God constantly for this, that, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as, not as the word from men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. This is God's word for God's people. You may be seated. Let's take a moment and pray together. Will you, will you bow your heads as we pray? Heavenly Father, we, uh, we thank you for the, the power and the simplicity of your word. We thank you for the witness of the truth of your word and just in changed lives and the grace of God that we see in, in each other every single day. And God, as a, as a church family, we, we come together before you uh, with our hearts heavy because, because of the events that occurred in Indianapolis this week. And God, Lord, so many of us uh, have connections to that particular facility. And, and Lord, 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 we're just horrified at the senseless loss of life that occurred. And so, God, our prayer is that you administer your comfort, your comforting presence to all the families involved. And, God, our prayer is that, that you would just redeem the evil that it, that it was and use it for good. And, God, I pray that, that you would just give us courage to live in you, to walk in you without fear. Lord, because you are God and you hold us in your hands every day. And Lord, I pray that, that for all of us within the sound of my voice, God, that we, that we would just live a life of love, that we would demonstrate grace and faith in all of our interactions every day. We live in such a divided world but I thank you that your gospel is the answer to that division. And I ask that you would use us, that you would mobilize us as an army of love, as an army armed with truth and grace to be light and to be salt in a very dark world. And so God, we, uh, we lift this to you and we ask that as we, uh, as we dive into your word that you would speak to us, God, that you would 
that you would help us to, to come to that place where we live for an audience of one. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name and God's people said, amen and amen. You know, it's often said about Paul's letter to the Romans, if you want to understand the mind of Paul, you'll read Romans. And uh, it's often said, if you want to understand the heart of the apostle, you'll read Thessalonians. And I think that's what we have here in chapter 2 from what I've read. I think what he's, what he's doing is he's really just simply sharing his heart uh, with the people that he uh, led to Christ, that, that God uh, brought to salvation through his efforts. And I think what we see just very simply in this passage today is just three ways that you and I can overcome the fear of rejection, three ways you and I can overcome really the fear of what other people think of us. And I think it really first and foremost begins, uh, number one, realizing that people will reject us. And I want to show you this in verses 1 and 2. I want, you to, I want you to look with me back in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. He says, for you, for you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. Now, what I want you to notice, the words that I want you to notice in that verse are the words where he, he's really talking about that he suffered, that he was shamefully treated, and, and the word conflict. Do you notice that? And, and he's not really trying to play the victim card here. What, what he's trying to do is just state a fact. This is, this is how we were treated. This was in the city of Philippi. This was long before they got to Thessalonica. And so he's just stating it. This is kind of church. This is standard operating procedure. For, this is nothing new for the Apostle Paul everywhere he went. Everywhere he went, there was CNN and there was a riot. That's just, that's just standard operating procedure. And I think, I think what he's trying to help us kind of come to understand is people are going to reject us. It's a part of life in a fallen world. And so if you want to know about what happened in Philippi before he got to Thessalonica, you read Acts chapter 16 because that's an interesting story. Paul and Silas were humiliated. They were insulted. They were arrested. They were stripped down. They were tied up and publicly flogged. Now, can you imagine coming home to your wife after that kind of day? Hey, honey, how was ministry at the church today? Well, we were arrested, stripped down, tied, and flogged. But outside of that, I think things went pretty good today. That's kind of where he's at. And not only that, but they were thrown into prison without a trial. Paul's a Roman citizen. It was against the law to treat him this way. And so things aren't going great here in Philippi. But this was, this was kind of normal for the Apostle Paul. Now, you can only imagine how he, how he felt. You can only imagine what's going through his mind. I mean, God has revealed his grace to the Apostle Paul in a life-changing way. God has revealed to him his gospel to him and called him to go to the ends of the earth. He has answered that call. He's been obedient to that call. He is fully trusting God in that call. And yet that's kind of the normal, typical day for him. And so what's happening is the Thessalonian Christians are beginning to question his, you know, his sincerity. And the reality is, is that criticism is never pleasant, but man, it really hurts when it comes from people that you've come to know and love. Wounds from a friend hurt way more than the wounds from an enemy. And Paul has both to the, to the nth degree. 
And so Paul's response here in, First Thess- in, in Thessalonians is, yeah, we suffered. Yep, that, that's exactly what happened. We faced strong opposition, no question about it. But he says, we were bold. He says, as you know, we were bold. We, we, we taught and we preached openly and freely and fearlessly in the face of tremendous conflict. In other words, what Paul is saying, we have nothing to hide. You saw us, you were with us. We have nothing to hide. Now, I think his point, again, is this, that people are gonna reject us. Now, church, listen to me. Don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying we need to go out into the world and be obnoxious, okay? And that we need to go out in the world and and just be argumentative and, and all of that. That's not the way of Christ. That is not our way. What I am saying is that when you make a, when you live for Jesus and you model love and kindness and gentleness and truth and grace, people will reject that. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying. And I think one of the dumbest things that we can do is to simply try to please everybody. Now, why is that dumb? Well, in a word, it's impossible. Even Jesus couldn't do that. And so no matter what you do, if you set your heart on always trying to gain the acceptance and approval of other people, it will, you'll, never, you'll never be enough, you'll never do enough. You, you'll do 98% perfect, and they will fixate on the 2% that you messed up on. And so you can't please people. To, you, know, you can please people today, but tomorrow they will never be satisfied. And so the truth is, people are going to reject us. And we know this. Because we know that some of our deepest wounds and hurts that we carry with us to this very day comes from people that we know and love who've rejected us in some way, deeply. And so we have this fear, this this deep, deep root fear in us. I have it, you have it, that we're going to be rejected. And then what happens is it turns us into approval addicts. It turns us into always seeking the approval and the affirmation or the likes on social media uh, as, as, as really just our ultimate identity, the ultimate validation of who we are. And church, it's just a trap. That's what the writer of Proverbs says. Proverbs 29, 25, the fear of man lays a snare. That's a trap, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. What he's talking about here is he's, he's talking about the fact that we become entrapped when we begin to worship the opinion of other people. And what he says is the way out of that is trusting in God. Putting our faith in God is what actually keeps us safe because it's the Lord who protects us. It's the Lord who keeps us safe. And so the way that it becomes a trap is that that we stop speaking the truth. We become entrapped because we're afraid to speak the truth. We're afraid to speak the truth in love because of what might happen back to us. And we're seeing it every day in our cancel culture, aren't we? Politicians and public figures and professional athletes and celebrities won't speak the truth because they are fear of disapproval. That's cancel culture, right? And so, as Christians, we are people of the truth. We live the truth. We don't hit people over the head with the truth, but we speak the truth in love, right? 
I think the fear of man becomes a snare because it causes loneliness. See, a lot of us have been hurt. So what we do is in response to that hurt is we build walls around us and we are sure to keep God and other people at a distance because we don't want our hearts broken again. And I'll tell you, it always leads to loneliness and regret. It always does. The biggest thing that the fear does, the fear of man does, is it silences our sharing the gospel. I think the typical American kind of Christian mindset is the, the paid staff at the church, they're the ones called to carry out the Great Commission, but not God's people. And so we're afraid. We're afraid to, you know, invite somebody to get coffee with us so that we can share how Christ has changed our life or we're afraid to invite other people to church because of what they might think of us. That's a trap. John 12 is really nothing new. We see this in John chapter 12. Uh, John records this. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in Jesus. Look at that. Even the authorities believed in Jesus. But out of fear of the Pharisees, they didn't confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. You see, they had cancel culture back then too. And it says this, an interesting observation, for they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Isn't that interesting? And so a lot of people believed in Jesus, but they were afraid to confess it. I remember a couple of years ago, I was on a trip to Israel, Luann and I were, and I was talking to one of our guides and just peppering her with a bunch of questions. And I, I was talking to her about, like, how did the Jewish people that live, like, in the city of Jerusalem, how did they view Jesus? I just was interested. And she said, Scott, she said, so many of them believe in Jesus. She said, so many believe. And I said, really? She said, yeah, they're just fearful to admit it. They're just kind of under the ground. They don't want to admit it. Isn't that interesting? And so we see this everywhere we go, this, this fear of rejection. Now, church, I, I have no idea what the future has for the United States or for us as Christians. I, I, I'm not a prophet. I'm not even pretending to be. Uh, but I can observe what's happening today in our culture. And it seems like to me that the winds have shifted against the church and against Christians in the United States and really throughout the world. Do you guys see that too? you feel that? And it could be, and I'm only speculating, I don't really know, but it could be that at some point in the not so distant future, it might cost us something to be Christians in the United States. It might cost us something to be here worshiping together as a church family on Sunday. It might. I'm not saying it will. I'm not saying that I want it to. I'm just saying things are shifting and changing so fast. And the truth is, persecution is, as Christians, real rejection is really not something American Christians have ever had to deal with. And it's interesting also because so much of the world, Christians around the world, it's a normal day in their life. Maybe they can teach us a few things. You know, it's interesting when you read through the book of Acts, you notice as Luke tells that story 
30 years, basically Acts tells the story of the church, the first 30 years, and the church is just exploding with, with growth. So you got 5,000 people coming to Christ, 2,000 people to come to Christ. I mean, it's just growing so quickly. And, and, then, and then things really start to kind of gear down when Emperor Nero in 65 AD takes the official government stand to begin persecuting Christians throughout the empire. 65 AD is when things got kicked off. Uh, the church responded beautifully. If you read that story, that Christians continue to pray and serve and share and proclaim the gospel, uh, hoping every day that the reign of terror under Nero would, would end. And so they were hopeful with the kind of transition in power coming in 67 AD. Emperor Vespian took over and things got a lot worse. And uh, what he would do is feed Christians to the lions, right? He would feed Christians to the animals. He would dip Christians in oil and set them on fire just because they were Christians. And so this went on and went on and on and on. And, um, and then AD 92, Emperor Domitian took over. And um, as emperor, you know, he issued a decree that uh, everybody in Rome would worship him as God. And if you had the means... You, would, you were to make pilgrimage to Rome, to the temple in the city, grab a little incense in the temple and throw it on the fire and say, Caesar is Lord. One of the earliest Christian creeds is Jesus is Lord. What were they doing? They were making a stand. And they were gonna say, we're not gonna worship the state. We're not gonna worship the state. But it was tempting it was tempting for them in Rome, right? It was so tempting. If you lived in Rome, it was so tempting to worship the state and just kind of go with the flow, right? Because you had the comfort of Rome. You had the money of Rome. You had the privileges of Rome. You have the roads of Rome. You had all this stuff going. And it was so tempting for Christians to say, you know, I'm just not, you know, I wish there was just some way we could kind of just make both ends work a little bit. And that happened for 30 years. This kind of persecution really happened for 30 years. So again, I, I'm not trying to be Debbie Downer here this morning. I'm just trying to ask the question, if, if things were to go that way, are you ready? Because what Paul is saying here is, we suffered, we were shamefully treated in the midst of conflict, but we were both. All right, so then the next question is, well, how do we, how do we respond to that, right? So how do we respond when people reject us? I think, I think what we do is we respond with integrity and compassion. That's how we respond. And you notice this. Let me just go back to verse 2. Notice what he says. He says, he basically says this, but though we had already suffered and had been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, he, he repeats that phrase several times, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel in the midst of much conflict. So, so really what he's talking about there is our response to that conflict and that persecution was courage. Courage. And I think if we were to experience kind of something like that, uh, that kind of persecution, I think God would give us grace. He would give us strength to help us through that. But we, we need to be pursuing it. And what Paul is saying is, by the grace of God, we, we came to you with boldness. As you know, you were there. You saw us, he's saying. And then notice what he says in verse 3. He says, for our appeal, in other words, his proclamation of the gospel didn't spring from error. 
Like we weren't preaching error to you. What he's saying is we preach to you the truth that Jesus lived, he died, and he rose. We brought that message to you. We didn't come in error. We came in the truth. And that's all we shared with you. That's what he's saying. He says, for our appeal doesn't spring from error or impurity. Now, I think there were, they were leveling accusations against the Apostle Paul that he was doing his ministry to get rich. Like he was, he was making money off of it. And uh, that's interesting. What Paul is saying is our motives are pure. And then if you skip down to verse 9, what, it's interesting why he says this because he really shows you his heart, his motives. He says, for you remember, brothers, our labor and toil, we work night and day that we might not be a financial burden to any of you. You know what he did? He made tents just so that they wouldn't have to support him financially. And he reminds them of that. We, we come to you with pure motives. We weren't a burden to you. And so he's just systematically dismantling those, those accusations for the glory of God. And then, and then he says this, we, you know, our appeal doesn't spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. You know, we didn't come flattering you. We didn't come seeking man's glory. We didn't come for that. We don't have time for that. That's garbage. We came approved by God to give you the message that you embraced, that you embraced. And we are here not to please man, but to please God. And you start really getting into what's driving the Apostle Paul, the singular focus just to please Jesus every single day. Now, there's one, one part of this response that I want to highlight because this one's huge as we kind of think about this. As you think about how we are to respond, when people reject us because we're Christians, we respond with integrity and compassion. We respond with love, don't we? We live in a very divided nation. We live in a very divided culture. And so always our, our first response and our second response and our third response is to respond in love to be a witness to people around us. And this is exactly what you see with the Apostle Paul. Notice his wording here, verse eight. So being affectionately desirous of you. See that? We affectionately desired you. We were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but we, we were also gonna share our very selves because you had become very dear to us. So you just kind of get the feeling like, man, we, we kind of opened up our hearts and we laid our lives before you. And I, I, I can't even imagine why you're, you're even entertaining all of these, all of these accusations because we gave our very selves to you. We had nothing to hide and you know that. You remember that. You saw that. And so I just think church that as the church of Jesus Christ, in a very divided, in a very tense time, I think we have a tremendous opportunity to speak the truth with pure motives, with honesty, and love. And I think that's so counterculture that when we do it, it's going to get people's attention. I really do. I think we've got to have a new plan going forward. The old plans don't work the plan of responding with integrity and compassion, that's what's gonna work. As people inevitably will say, you know, you are not for me. And then here's the last one. We need to seek God's approval, right? We need to seek God's approval. Ultimately, that's the answer to uh, approval seeking. And you see this 
You see this in verse 4, he says, but just as we've been approved by God and entrusted with the gospel, we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. He says, this is, this is our ultimate goal. This is our ultimate aim. We, we want to stand before God and have his approval on our lives one day. Now, here's where the fear of rejection comes. It comes from two spots. It comes first and foremost from this, this place of believing that we need love. That we need love. And that's absolutely true. Church, we need mass doses of love. We're people. We are made, you know, to be loved and God loves us and we need love every single day. So that's absolutely true. But the fear of rejection really comes when we expect other people to fully meet that need of love. And the truth is not one person in your life can meet your need for love. Not fully. And we get into problems in our marriages, you know, when, we, when we're, we're putting that kind of expectation on a spouse to meet all of our needs. To meet our needs, the need that only God can really meet. Because the truth is this, church, no human being alive can meet all of your needs. Only God can fill that void in your life and mine. So what happens is we start putting that expectation on other people. They start disappointing us. We start getting angry and it's causing friction. The problem is we're looking to people. We're not looking to God. And so when we start basing our love and security and identity on human beings, it makes us unstable and insecure. What we need to do is set it on the love of God that never changes. And that's where the Apostle Paul is. I think that's why he was good with going in a city and having people start throwing rocks at him because he was secure in the love of God. He had the presence of God with him. Now, does God use people in our lives to help meet that need? Certainly. And Paul had those folks in his life. You have them in your life. They're, they're not the source. They're just the, the instrument. Now, let me just kind of close with this. It, it's really ironic that, that we struggle with this, I struggle with this, you struggle with it. it it's, it's really ironic that we have this fear of people. We put so much value on the opinions of people that really their opinions won't even last. And then we don't value the opinions of God that last forever. I find that very ironic. And here's the other irony to it. We fear the opinion of people who have the least invested in us. Like when you think about it, we're striving to gain all of this approval and acclamation and affirmation from people that have very little invested in us. And we're not pursuing the one who has everything invested in us. You know who that is? It's God through his son, Jesus Christ. He gave up, he gave up everything for us. And so something's amiss there. And so God had gave up everything that was precious to him so that we could know his forgiveness and know his love. He, he gave up his son. See, his son suffered and was shamefully treated and experienced nothing but conflict. Why? Because he loves you and because he loves me. He went to the cross. They arrested him, they stripped him, they tied him up, and they publicly flogged him. And he let them because he loves you and me.
And so church, that's the grace of the gospel today that while we were sinners, Jesus died for us. So people will reject us, that's okay. People will reject God and have. But we know we are God's sons and daughters and we can rest secure in that. Let's pray together. Lord God, I thank you for the power of your word and I, I pray, Father, that you would just give us boldness as a congregation. Lord, we don't know the future, but we know you and you hold the future in your hands. And so, Lord, whatever comes, prosperity or adversity, God, we're good, we're fine. Because we know you love us and you're with us. Your love is enough. You are enough. You are our lot and our portion. You are all that we need. And so God, if we'll just seek first the kingdom, the kingdom will meet all of our needs. And so God, I just pray that you would give us eyes to see the tension that's in our culture, how politicized our culture is, and help us to just transcend it with truth and grace. We're not citizens here, we're citizens of another country. So Lord, empower, empower us as ambassadors and not be so worried about what other people think. And so God, give us opportunities this week, tomorrow even, to share your good news. Thank you that you're with us because you live. We pray this in Jesus' name and all of God's people said, amen.